everyone, and welcome to another episode of Genetically Podified, the podcast that allows us to have a very, very sciencey Saturday morning. <laughs> hey, Love a hello. bit of science in the morning. <laughs> yes, with a coffee, it's perfect. It's a perfect balance. <laughs> How are you, James? I'm good, thank you. I'm prepping for a holiday to go to your country. Ooh, to my country! <gasps> Yeah. Exciting. Where are you going yeah. to my country? Rome for three days Ooh. to see the typical tourist site with yeah, Annie. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then we're going to Sorrento, Naples area for five days. We've got a villa with uh, some other PhD friends of ours. Oh, which is going to be so sick. Nice. So Vesuvius, Pompeii, lots of sunbathing. Annie and I have booked a pasta making course. So we're going to be like pasta making oh, champions of the so UK. That is so cool. You're going to do the full experience. That's awesome. Yeah, Yay. yeah. We're going full oh, Italian. so nice. Oh, that sounds yeah, so, exciting. so nice. Yeah, I myself am going back in September. I went back nice. in July and now I'm going back in September. We'll see. Well, that doesn't really make sense to frame it in the time frame because, again, we don't know how when this episode is going to air. <laughs> <laughs> Probably like Christmas, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I've got a conference coming up in Parma, which is the, ah, the city of uh, Parma ham and Parmesan cheese. So I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, it's going to be yeah. really nice, I think. Dope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's going to be fun. Very cool. But yeah, should we get started with today's episode? Let us do it. Yay. Okay, let's get going. Before we begin, the views expressed here are our own. Nobody else's. Okay. So today we're kind of letting James lead us into this journey through what GMOs mean for the poorest sides of the farming community. Let's put it that way. I don't know if I, Mm. is that, is that, is that? Yeah, basically how uh, big agri and poor rural farmers interact with each other. Yes, what I'm looking at. So again, I will be contributing along the way and asking questions, but mostly it's on James today. As you've noticed, we've kind of got this structure where there's one episode where I'm talking most and then one episode where James talks most. Let us know if you like this kind of format. Mm, Uh, We find it quite comfortable because it means that we get to actually record two episodes at a time without it being too difficult to actually Mm. get all the readings done and, you know, all our sources and information together. And it makes it very spontaneous and we like keeping it nice and and chill and spontaneous like that. So let us know if you like this. Uh, If you want us to both talk more because you miss us every week, uh, let us know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But yeah, on to you, James. Thank you. Cool. Thanks. So I'm going to start with two disclaimers. Mm -hmm. The first one is that I am a plant molecular biologist. So what I'm talking about today is not what I do my PhD research on. This is not my like extreme expertise, as it were. Right. But what I do have is that I typically read about a book a week. And lots of those books are to do with agriculture and food security and economics of agriculture and food security and that kind of stuff. And these aren't just like easy books. Usually they're not like Harry Potter and the Magical Seeds. These are <laughs> like books you would find in a university, like collections of essays. So they're like intensive books. And I read one of those a week. Oh, wow. So what I'm talking about here, although it's not my expertise, this is a kind of summary of everything I've learned from reading about these topics from these books. So if I get stuff wrong, I apologize. I would love for the record to be set straight and I will set it straight on a podcast at the end of the next recording or something. It's quite possible that I've got some of the things wrong, but I'm talking about general themes today. Mm -hmm. Okay. So yeah, let me know. 
The other thing is, because of the nature of this topic, it, I've kind of had to write it as an essay, so it's potentially not going to be as spontaneous and funny and normal, because it, this story has to be told in order to be able to yeah. understand yeah, what's yeah, kind yeah, of going on. Yeah, 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 fair enough. You have to get the facts right. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, don't let that stop you from interjecting, Roberta. And... Yeah, absolutely. I will interrupt, don't worry. <laughs> cool. And then, I guess the other thing is, oh, well, the third final thing, <laughs> is that this is an ongoing process for me. I've got two books in front of me, which are covering these sorts of topics again and that's will probably update the information in this and Roberta and I were thinking of doing something like that but we'll we'll tell you about that at the end of the episode mm-hmm. yeah yeah sure yeah so big agri and the poor is what I've labeled my little essay in my book <laughs> so we're going to start off in the sort of 1950s and 60s so this is when we had the green revolution so in the green revolution basically there was a big food production issue The population was increasing as it still is today, but loads of people were in poverty and starving because not enough food was being produced to feed them. Mm -hmm. And then into this situation, enter Norman Borlaug, my fucking hero. Mm -hmm. Everybody's hero. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So he is one of the main instigators of the Green Revolution. So he began a whole load of breeding, like really amazing breeding programs, which required a huge amount of innovation and intelligent creativity, and also a huge amount of time and money as well. And then also combined lots of other things that in the developed world we had kind of mastered to be able to increase our food production, Mm -hmm. and then brought that to the developing world to enable them to feed themselves. So in the Green Revolution, you have a combination of high yield varieties using things like irrigation and more infrastructure Mm -hmm. and increased use of chemicals, so fertilizers, pesticide, insecticide, and then finally mechanization. But mechanization was less on Norman Borlaug's agenda, but it did slowly start to happen. Right, okay. And this combination has estimated to have saved over a billion lives from starvation. So that's why Norman Borlaug is our hero. He won a Nobel Peace Prize for this work not just in the breeding programs, but also generally his advocacy for the Green Revolution and and feeding people. But you'd be right in thinking that the problem isn't solved because there are still hungry people around the world. But it's one of these common phrases that we have enough food in the world already. We produce enough, but people are obviously still hungry. So what's happening? What is wrong with the world? Exactly. So in the 80s, it was determined by sort of international groups like the UN, that now that we'd sorted out the production problem, but there were still hungry people, the real cause of hunger in this situation was poverty and the inability to be able to raise funds to purchase food. So there could be food in countries, in in, in fact, in many cases, in places like Ethiopia, where there were big droughts, there was actually food in these places that had been produced, but so many people were impoverished and weren't able to purchase the food and then had to be reliant on food aid instead. So that was kind of seen as the issue. And then in the 80s, the World Trade Organization, the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, all these kind of groups got together and thought about how to solve these problems economically, because it's a poverty issue now, so it has to have an economic solution. Yeah, of course. And they kind of came up with two options. The first one was to increase the Green Revolution but to try and prevent as much as possible the monopolization that had been seen in the developed world. 
so that the agriculture-based communities in these developing countries, which is the vast majority of people, have increased income and increased purchasing power. Okay. So that individual farmers still working on the land can use the tools of the Green Revolution have enough food for themselves, but also have enough to sell on the international yeah, market. Yeah, basically make a living off of agriculture. Basically. Exactly, yeah. And then the second option was to kind of go the route that developed countries had done. So basically to increase this slow monopolization of agriculture and then convert the developing country economies from agrarian, so working with the land, to industrial okay and the idea behind this is that this is kind of what happened in the sort of 20s and 30s in the developed world where we went from largely being an agrarian uh, economy to an industrial yeah yeah, exactly urbanization monopolization of agriculture exactly and they argued that that freed a lot of people from agriculture allowed them to come in and industrialize the city centers and then the country as a whole got richer And then individuals would have higher paying jobs from industry and from that increased income have more purchasing power to buy food. So that's the idea. So both have the ability to increase purchasing power. But in the end, they chose option two. So now we're going to look at why they chose option two and not option one. Yeah. So option one, as we said before, is the agrarian reform sort of stuff. Keep people on the land, but make it more profitable. Mm hmm. And that would be successful at feeding people and providing incomes. But the the negative behind that is that in these countries, it would increase the production of staple crops. And economically, that's not efficient in the market because the developed world already produces a massive surplus of staple crops. Of staple crops, yeah. So in terms of like perfect economics, that's a bad idea. You don't want to produce what there's already a surplus of because that's just the wasted energy, essentially. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. Prices go down and it, it kind of wastes energy, essentially, is the idea. Also, it reminds me of the fact that developed countries uh, like Europe, like the UK, have uh, systems in place for funding agriculture so the price will not go down in those countries because agriculture is subsidized mm. uh, and they have systems in place to support farmers. So that means that it's, I guess, it's counterproductive. So yeah. instead of creating a solution, it creates an even bigger problem because the prices go down only in certain countries instead of every country. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. so it's seen as price distorting. But I want to talk about that a bit more. So why is there a surplus in the developed world? How does that come about? So during World War Two in Europe, hunger was used as a tool of war. I saw that in the UK where there was rationing of all sorts of food. And generally at that time, most of the European powers were still colonialists. So loads of their agricultural food that fed their nation came from around the globe. And then in wartime, yeah. that was cut off. And people started to starve and started to ration. And after World War II, that was seen as a universally shit situation. (laughs) So the major powers involved in World War II decided that they wanted to become self-sufficient in agriculture. Mm -hmm. So that were war to come again, that hunger couldn't be used as a weapon during that war. So Europe and America particularly put huge amounts of effort into becoming self-sufficient so they have massively prioritized producing the staple foods 
So that's why there is a surplus in the international market. So these countries produce enough staples to feed themselves and then what they don't need to feed themselves, they sell on the international market. Right. And I'll get to the subsidies and that kind of stuff a bit later. Yeah, sure. So what is preferable in terms of market efficiency only is that when developing countries change their agriculture, Mm -hmm. they don't go for staple foods because there's already so many of them. Mm -hmm. They instead produce luxury foods Ah, like high-value crops. High-value crops, so coffee, cocoa, beans, rubber, that kind of stuff. Stuff that is not a staple food, so you can't survive just on a coffee bean, for example. Although many students would probably disagree. (laughs) Uh, I, myself, disagree with that. (laughs) I'm surviving right now. (laughs) But the idea is that developing world farmers would produce luxury foods, sell it to the developed world, and then mm-hmm. with that income, be able to purchase stable food from the developed world. Right. So the income gets increased. They can purchase that food from the developed world and it produces a more efficient market. Why do I feel like this is not going to work? I have this. <laughs> well, because this decision was in the 80s and it's now 2018 and it hasn't worked. That's why. It's not <laughs> okay, work. okay, okay, okay. <laughs> The other problem seen with option one, where you kind of keep it with the individual farmers growing their own stuff rather than moving into industry, was that it wasn't really seen as progressive. The developed Mm. countries kind of take pride in moving from the agrarian society to an industrial society. And now this sort of slow move in recent decades into the service society. Yeah, okay. And I can understand that because we've shown in the developed countries that the industrial and service economies are much more profitable. And generally, the jobs are much easier as well. So you have an easier way of it. So I can understand that. So option two where we help these developing countries move from agrarian to industrial was seen as much more progressive. It was seen as much more efficient in terms of international markets. And then also it was just assumed to be a better solution at feeding and providing incomes. So it was a big assumption there. So this was something that Norman Borlaug particularly fought against because he was like, I don't know why we're making this change. I don't know why Mm. we're going in in this direction. All the evidence we've seen in places like Mexico and Southeast Asia, where he worked, his method of the Green Revolution was working. And in areas where things were still going badly at this time, were areas where the Green Revolution hadn't been implemented as much for various reasons, particularly Africa at the time. So they kind of assumed that the best thing for the markets, international markets, would be the best thing for developing countries. So to go through option two, Mm -hmm. to help these countries move from agrarian to industrial, they've done a number of policies which kind of go under the big umbrella term of structural adjustment. So structural adjustment, like I said, it's a big umbrella term. It includes the stabilisation of economies, the kind of fixing of them so that they're not so poor and they haven't got big deficits. But it also includes agriculture. So those are kind of like the three main things. It's kind of like short-term stabilisation, long-term revenue increasing, and then thirdly, a monopolisation of agriculture and a shift to industry. Okay. So that's kind of the idea. And the IMF, International Monetary Fund, and the World Bank would provide big loans in order to help these countries make these economic and political shifts. 
but those loans came with prerequisites that they had to make these shifts to be able to qualify for these loans. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, is that all making sense so far? Yeah, yeah, it is making sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm assuming I need all of this to understand what's coming afterwards, so I'm trying to... Yeah, unfortunately you do, yeah. It's a long story. Okay, so clearly we haven't perfectly dealt with hunger in the world. There's still a lot of hungry people. Yeah. What went wrong with option two? Mm-hmm. I, I want to stress here that these are all generalizations. Um, one of the books I'm reading at the moment is looking at structural adjustment and how actually a lot of the demonization of structural adjustment has been kind of exaggerated. But I still want to talk about the general stuff of what's happened. So to go from agriculture to industry, you need jobs because everyone's on agriculture. That's where they work. They're yeah. self-employed in that sense. And you want yeah. them to move in the cities, but they can't just sit around doing nothing. So they need jobs. Yeah. And that needs a huge amount of investment in urban cities. So it needs yeah. investment in infrastructure, education, yeah. training, factories, housing. And that includes not just public investment via the government, but also private investment. And these projects need to be planned and managed properly. So you need the human capital, essentially, the skilled personnel to ensure that all this investment gets implemented efficiently into industries that will then be efficient themselves. And this is kind of where it started to hit problems. So there was a lack of human capital generally in in terms of trained professionals. So there was a Mm -hmm. huge wastage in efficiency and opportunity and economic growth. Also, at the same time, the governments of many developing countries is a big employer of people, which meant that a lot of the time these governments tended to be really bloated. And then when they got bloated, they tried to make cuts and then they cut the highest paid people. But unfortunately, the highest paid people were the best skilled. So the skills were lost again and they moved uh, across. And then also you have the issue of corruption. It's a vicious circle. Exactly. Yeah. So a lot of that investment, unfortunately, was wasted. And then you couple that with several financial crises and regional unrest. And those kind of things lead to a decrease in investor confidence. So people aren't sure that what they invest in is going to be able to pay back or not even return profits, but even Mm -hmm. pay itself Mm -hmm. back. So there's a reduction in investment even more. So it meant that people wanted to move from agriculture to industry, but there weren't necessarily the jobs there. Meanwhile, Big Agri and the agricultural reforms started to come in and do what they do best, which is to make the food production really efficient and then free workers into industry. I'm using free workers in the phrase they would use. I think a lot of social scientists would say displace workers. (laughs) And that's a perspective issue. So Big Agri and the agricultural reforms were doing that, but industry was becoming stagnant in the cities. So it ended up with an increased amount of unemployment, no money, Crime, and no I'm food. Assuming at this um, point. Yeah, as well. So during this time, big agri and agricultural reforms are kind of holding up their end of the bargain mm-hmm. because doing this to try and encourage more rural farmers become urban mm-hmm. and get jobs in industry, but the industry jobs aren't there. So it's kind of not really working. So the farmers that stay and grow luxury crops, they can't compete with big agri because big agri is much more efficient. So they get outcompeted, impoverished, and then have to move into urban cities, which is kind of the process that the economic international community wanted. But they presumed that there would be jobs in the urban cities for these people to move (laughs) into. So now that this obviously isn't happening, that those jobs aren't there, Why aren't people returning to the rural land and growing staple crops? 
So a lot of the land now is being owned by Big Agri. Again, this is... A generalisation. A, yeah. a generalisation, yeah. Like, it's not like that Big Agri and monopolization owns 90% of the land, but, like, it varies a lot, and it is slowly being taken yeah. away. And, and, I mean, we can talk about Big Agri in the States and in Canada and in places like that. In places like Italy, for example, and smaller countries, agricultural land is still owned by small-scale farmers, for example. So mm. that's, you know, yeah, just, yeah. just know that there is, we can generalize because that is the main situation. But of course, there are nuances and, and stuff like that. But yeah, yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And the other issue is that if these rural farmers wanted to grow staples, mm-hmm. the staples can't compete with Western subsidized yep. staples. So this is where we get onto what, what I was mentioning uh, you before. were talking yeah, about yeah, yeah, exactly. a while ago. Yeah. So the idea behind Western subsidies and things like the common agricultural policy in the EU, which we've mentioned yeah. before is that because essentially of exchange rates and how one currency is valued versus another currency. So I went to Armenia mm-hmm. recently with my wife and her family and one pound was 600 Armenian oh, drum. Wow. So what that means is that essentially farmers producing food here is much more expensive proportionately than it is for them to grow food in Armenia. In terms of a global situation, it's cheaper for me, the government of the UK, yeah. to send some resources over to Armenia, mm-hmm. where they have really cheap labour compared to the UK, mm-hmm. and then transport the food back and feed my population that yeah. way. It's cheaper to do it that way than for an English farmer to do it here, yeah. just because the wage disparity is so yeah. massive. So in a perfectly efficient market, the developed world countries would not be growing any agriculture probably because it's not profitable mm-hmm. yeah it's far cheaper for it to be grown in developing countries and then for us to import yeah. it however like we've discussed before because of world war Two, most of these developed countries are incredibly insistent on being self-sufficient yeah. they just won't allow themselves to be dependent on other countries for their staple foods mm-hmm. anymore which I think is actually a very smart move in a world that's going to be probably in a lot of trouble in terms of resources. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you think of Brexit right now, I mean, that's a really controversial and very interesting point of discussion where is the UK autonomous mm. in terms of food? The answer is no. <laughs> yeah. The answer is a, a straight yeah. no. But there are options. There is technology and stuff that we can do to try and get what we need to survive in case shit goes south. <laughs> mm, but yeah. anyways, yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. that's a whole different episode, I guess. Yeah, yeah. That would be an interesting episode. Yeah, it would be, wouldn't it? So yeah, so the staple crops from the West are not efficient on the global market. Mm -hmm. So they would make a loss every time that they went to market. Mm -hmm. And then every European farmer would go out of business immediately because they can't sell their crops and make a profit. Mm -hmm. So we'd have no farmers in the UK and most of Europe and America. So what these countries do is subsidise those farmers. So basically things like the Common Agricultural Policy means that countries in Europe, the governments will pay the farmers what they need to survive, essentially, and keep producing food. So they will pay almost the wages. And then whatever is left over, the surplus from the harvests, that gets sold on the international market. But because the farmers now have all their expenses paid for, they can undercut the market as much as they want because anything they sell is a profit no matter what because the governments are funding the farmers. Yeah, yeah. Again, farming family. So the CAP, the CAP, my family is quite familiar with it. And that's, yeah, it's basically, Mm. imagine it as if it was a living wage. 
So basically, because mm. you are a farmer and you own a certain amount of land or you're cultivating a certain amount of things on your land, independently from your yield or anything like that, you get a certain amount of money. And I can tell you from experience, farmers live off that money. They need that money to yeah. survive and to make a living. And sometimes it's not even enough. If you have a very low yielding season and you've used a couple of, let's say, a couple of herbicides to fight off some pests, or if you've used a lot of uh, fertilizer, this kind of stuff mm. is really expensive. Seeds are really expensive. So it's really easy to come out at the end of the year. The expenses have outbalanced the income and it's zero at the end, you know. You have to be, I think, a bigger farmer. The bigger the farm, the easier it is to make money off of the subsidies. But if you're a small-scale farmer, uh, it's still a little bit... It's not a perfect system, let's put it that way. But it, it's quite an interesting thing to look at. Uh, it's absolutely... Mm, yeah, so um, these subsidies, are essentially, it's known as protectionism. And protectionism is something that economists who love the free market hate because yeah. it doesn't allow <laughs> the free market. Yes. So if you're seeing ironies here, you're right, because, <laughs> you know, you have the developed countries telling the developing countries that in order to be efficient, they need to be making the luxury crops instead of the staple crops. Yeah. All the while, the only reason that these countries are being forced to make luxury crops is because... We need to make staple crops. <laughs> because the developed world is inefficiently making staple crops. <laughs> So there's there's a lot of ironies and contradictions in there. And yeah. internationally, it's hated. Yeah. This comes up in all these trade agreements that I've read. The agriculture is often a point where they fall apart in these big oh, trade yeah, agreements. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because it is really not fair. And particularly not fair is that a lot of the things that come with these loans, these structural adjustment loans, what they are saying is that the developing countries need to open up and stop their protectionist measures in terms of everything but it's particularly troublesome in terms of agriculture. Yeah. So they're saying, okay, we're going to be protectionist, but if you want the money to improve yourself in the way that we want you to improve, you have to remove all protectionism. And it's mm. kind of shitty, you know. It's not... Mm. When I was reading, I was like, I don't, I don't really like this. It's not nice. But the other thing I want to mention from this is that I find really worrying is that now many developing countries are very reliant on food from the West. Mm. And we can use that against them. You know, if a population is going to starve without the staple food that we provide, and in many countries, in areas of unrest at the moment, they're not self-sufficient, and this is a time where war is becoming more and more likely, it, it seems like this could be a recipe for disaster, in my opinion. Yeah. And the people out there who are listening who know a bit about international law and war crimes will know that using food and hunger as, as a tool for war is now an international crime. But I would hasten to add that this did not stop America using food as a weapon of war against Cuba. Mm. And this was something that was in international circles was declared as a crime repeatedly. And America was repeatedly told to stop that they were contravening several international laws. And that didn't stop them. And this was, you know, during the Cold War. And if we have an equally desperate time of conflict ahead of us because of uh, lack of resources and climate change and all, all this kind of stuff, 
I see no reason why this being an international crime, I see no reason why that would stop it from happening. Yeah, I think one thing that I would like to add to that is we talk about high value crops and stuff like that. Of course, you cannot leave off, as you said, like you cannot leave off coffee, you cannot leave off cocoa. And the fact that we've basically, when I say we, I mean the Western world, we've taken the stable crops away from small scale farmers. And I remember reading about this and we've, we had some examples of the worst cases when it comes to food international trade and the most problematic food Mm. commodities in the world. And one of them was bananas and one of them was coffee. And I remember this professor telling us about how bananas were introduced as a novelty early on, because of course they were not a Western commodity. And then they became Mm. an instrument for Western countries because the Western countries only liked a certain specific type of bananas. They kind of convinced third world countries to cultivate lots of bananas and banana plantations are actually quite heavy on synthetic fertilizers. And basically, small-scale farmers started cultivating bananas because they had a high value in the Western world and they could export them and make a lot of money off of them. But then they would have to use that money to buy stable crops. That's where I, mm. where, where I was going with this. Yeah, that's cool. So that, finally, is the end of the scene setting. <laughs> ah, okay, cool. <laughs> so, now to the original question. What is the role of big agri and developing world farmers? Yeah. So in my opinion, I believe it all began with good intentions. Mm-hmm. The big agri would have made big profits if they had done a new green revolution because they would have been able to sell all their goods to the farmers yeah. and the, yeah. the farmers could do that. And then they have made big profits in this current situation as well. They have made more this way. But my point is that this option two that was chosen was not decided by Big Agri. This Mm. was decided by the international economic community. Big Agri are just doing their job. They are doing their side of the bargain. Mm -hmm. And actually, they are doing a very good job in providing a good taxable revenue to these countries because they're more efficient the governments can have more money to work with and start investing in industry. So I I don't think they're at fault from the get-go. They are working with a system that was decided by the international community. But now my problem is, is that they can see that this situation isn't working well as a generalization, Mm -hmm. but they're still continuing with the name of profit. They started off well, but now they're... (laughs) Exactly. Their side only works if the other side works, but the other Mm -hmm. side's not working and they're still continuing. Mm. So, you know, they're selling their stuff to farmers in countries that have no protection for farmers in terms of debt and borrowing or crop loss. Many people are being displaced into poverty or freed into urban cities because they can't compete. And then also pastoralists are losing access to land that their animals grazed on. And this would all be fine if this was the process that these countries were making. But actually, the progress in that is really slow and they're going too fast, in my opinion. So that's where I feel Big Agri is. Where is GM in this story? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is a good question. I personally don't think there's much of a role of GM here. The seeds potentially are more expensive But then other big agri seeds can be very expensive as well. GM might be slightly more expensive. And then also not every GM crop is adapted to a specific area. Yeah, So the GM crop might be Climate has got a lot to play with. Exactly, yeah. The climate, what's in the soil and that kind of stuff. But again, that's not a GM specific problem. That is a big agri problem. Yeah. So I see GM as potentially being, it could make it slightly worse purely by being more expensive. Mm. But ultimately, mm-hmm. the things that Big Agri are doing are being damaging, not necessarily GM. 
that's kind of where I see the situation but I just want to round it off with some more sort of general thoughts so I don't want to give the impression that everyone in the developing world is starving but it is a big number it's around 800 million and with an increasing population particularly in the areas that are having food security issues as yeah. well as climate because change climate as well change. as yeah I was going to say exactly as well as increased conflict because of climate change and resource loss that number of people who are food insecure is likely to increase. I think it's around 75% of the food produced in the world is still on family farms. We need to make sure that it stays that way until the industrial sectors of the developing countries are ready. Mm -hmm. If we do decide that we want to change from agricultural to industrial to services, which I personally think is a good idea for the reasons I stated earlier in terms of increased productivity and then generally the jobs being less demanding physically. If we want that to happen with developing world countries and make them developed countries as well, then we need to make sure that the industry is ready before we start kicking these family farms off the land. We need to avoid increasing the poverty during this time and avoid economic instability of going from agriculture to industry and then industry to services because typically those big shifts from agriculture to industry and then industry to services have been correlated and arguably causes of these massive crashes so when the developed world went from agriculture to industry that coincided with the great depression and now the developed world going from industry to services coincided with the great recession so we need to be careful that that doesn't happen again in developing world countries because that is yeah. horrible and it leads to nasty things. Yeah, I, I remember watching an episode of Bill Nye Saves the World. There was an episode about, I think it was climate change and energy. And they were talking to an Indian climate scientist. And they were saying that because developing countries are developing so quickly and the economy is growing so fast. And this shift from agriculture to industry is kind of happening already. It's like... Mm, and it's happening really quickly what we have to make sure of if we want to save our species and the planet we have to help developing countries to skip the industrial revolution phase and go into the renewables phase and create what you said like infrastructure and training and facilities and these kinds of things we have to help them skip the coal phase basically yeah only one and what this scientist was saying she was she was very clear on the fact that India is already shifting to coal. Yeah. Small communities are already shifting to cheaper and easily accessible sources of energy, but that doesn't mean that they're sustainable. So there's a lot of things to keep in mind. And I think mm. one other thing where you say, well, GMO might make things worse. Well, I think GMOs in the hands of big agri might make things worse because they might be more expensive. But I always mm. go back to the banana case. Yeah. African farmers and African scientists are trying to find a way to fight this wilting situation. Uh, mm. Basically, bananas are rotting on the trees because of, of wilt. It's quite a big problem. It's quite endemic. It's affecting huge, huge amounts of banana trees. And there's no way of stopping it because, as, as we've said before, there is very low variability in the banana mm. in the banana plant population. And that's where I go back to empowering farmers and empowering scientists. Mm. I think we have to take GMO away from Big Agri and detach that because Big Agri has all its agricultural problems and practices yeah. problems. If we give back... And it, I, I kind of struggle to say this because it kind of lines up with what Vandana Shiva says 
Yeah. <laughs> and I don't like agreeing with Vandana Shiva, but it's the, the idea of uh, the fact that GMO is a technology that should be accessible from everybody. And I think it's yeah. the same thought process that scientists had when they created golden rice that was supposed mm. to solve a third world country problem, but it's still not out there for a whole variety of reasons. And because it's people have something to say against big agri. But again, big agri problems are agricultural problems, not GMO problems. Yeah. yeah. So we, we always go back to that idea. But I think GMO has a role to play. Yeah. That's why I keep saying empowering, empowering people, empowering mm. locals, empowering communities and empowering farmers. And that's where social sciences come into place. Anthropology and conflict solving and all these kinds of things. And I think the generalization, although it gives us an idea of what the big picture is, takes away from the detailed and differentiated nuances yeah. of what we can do on a small scale. Yeah. Big agri plays a big role because it's big, but there are many other things that we can do on a different level. It's hard to take away the monopoly of a big agri because it's so big. It's got all the money. It's got all the science, all the resources to do research and development. So they will probably always come to the solution the quickest. But mm -hmm. with research facilities, and this banana thing is quite a good example. If science gets together with farmers, something good might come out of it. And if we make sure that there is this link, it's like giving you fish and teaching you how to fish. Yeah. Empowering people locally in communities that are struggling might also take away that food as an instrument for war yeah, situation definitely. as well. So I think GMO has a role to play yeah. in this situation. I totally agree. I think GM has an important role to play for solving some of these problems. So mm -mm. let's say that climate change or a disease breaks loose that destroys yes. all yes. the bananas, right? Yes. Then all the developing world farmers who this was their luxury crop yeah. don't have money anymore. So they yeah. can't buy food from us anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So GM could solve that problem. Or vice versa, if climate change, like, you know, the incredible heat we've been having this summer, I'm yeah. very interested to see what that does for our yield. Oh, we'll see soon enough. Don't worry. If it's too hot and we don't produce enough, then suddenly it doesn't matter how much luxury goods the developing world has to sell to us. If we don't have a surplus of grain and staple food to sell yeah. to them... Yeah. then it doesn't matter, you know? Yeah, yeah. I'm a big fan of every country being self-sufficient. And then if they want to grow luxury crops to sell, then they do that. But really, I don't think any country should be reliant on any other country at the moment. Yeah, it's not market efficient, but maybe when it comes to stuff like food, stuff we need to survive, mm. we should just be like, you know what, forget market efficiency. Let's just survive yeah. and then make money elsewhere, you know? Yeah, 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 I agree. I think there is a balance, you know, to be found. You don't have to be 100% self-sufficient, but there, yeah, yeah. I think there has to be a Enough to survive. Of, in, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, although, again, climate change, some countries might just not be able to do that anymore. Uh, yeah, that, that's a good point. I mean, there are countries like, like Egypt. Egypt is yeah, not really yeah. capable of doing that. Yeah. Many countries where a lot of their land is desertified may not be yeah, able to do yeah, that. But exactly. to the best of their ability, we need to be working towards that, I believe. Yeah, yeah, anyway, yeah. so Anyways, to round yeah. it off, final comment for me is that yeah. big agri and developing world countries, big agri are doing their job that they were always intended to do, but now they're doing it too well 
and they should <laughs> calm down until industry gets sorted out, is my opinion. Chill out, Bayer. Chill out, Monsanto. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, like I said before, this could be subject to change as I read new books. And Roberta mm-hmm. had a great idea, which I'll let her explain whilst I go grab yeah, my book. Yeah, sure. Of course. So what we were thinking, uh, and again, if you guys out there have suggestions about this, this could be a cool kind of shorter episodes that we could do where we read some books and discuss them. We might not want to read the same books all the time, but also I'm not a fan of reading. If I find the audiobook, uh, I might be able to do that, <laughs> but it takes me ages to finish reading a book. But for example, I'm reading this book called Food Wars. At the moment, I'm reading this Italian book, uh, which I've mentioned before in the podcast, actually, called Contro Natura, which means against nature. And it's old mm. stuff, uh, you know, GM, and it's really, really mm. cool. It's a really cool book. There is a book by Linus, which is a guy who initially believed GMO was evil and now he's changed his mind and he's wrote a book yeah, about it. And a Greenpeace fella. I don't know if he's Greenpeace. The, the book is called Seeds of Science, I think. Yeah, all right, cool. Something like that. That could be an interesting read. But yeah, if you want to tell us the title of the books that you've used as inspirations for this yes. episode... Uh, please do. Uh, well, I haven't got a list of all the ones I've read. It, <laughs> I, I do intend to make a list, but um, that's all right. I can write the list. But the two I'm reading at the moment, which will probably change my opinion, well, not necessarily change my opinion, but inform me a bit more mm-hmm. about the topics of this episode. The first one I'm reading at the moment is called Structural Adjustment to Reconsidered Economic mm. Policy and Poverty in Africa. And that's by San Dorosh and Younger. It's the kind of shit I read on the train and I get funny looks, you know. <laughs> we love the funny looks. Yeah. And then the second one is called New Seeds and Poor People, mm. which is by Lipton and Longhurst. Interesting. Yeah, they seem pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you people are interested or have book suggestions, please let us know. So thanks everybody so much for tuning in and listening to this episode of Genetically Modified. If you want to know more or want to ask us questions or want to suggest some books, please let us know through our email, which is geneticallypodified at gmail.com or through Twitter at GenPodified or on our Facebook page at GenPodified. Please review us on iTunes. And if you liked it, please like us and share our podcast. It's really, really helpful. You have no idea how helpful that is and uh yeah thank you for peg and the rejects for their lovely lovely uplifting songs that they let us use for our intro and outro and yes i think this is it so have a lovely rest of the week slash weekend whenever you're listening to this and we'll see you next time later